Okay. Uh, we want to end the series on spiritual realm stuff with looking at our place in all of this. Uh, we said it from the beginning. Uh, this is not just some interesting study and, oh, you know, the, these passages and here's an explanation and here's some of this stuff. It's more than that. There is a role that we play in it today uh, when uh, the New Testament writers talk about all of this post-gospel. Uh, they actually spend quite a bit of time talking about spiritual realm stuff. Uh, a lot of their writing is going to have this in the background uh, as they're talking about different things that baptism, worship, church, etc. Uh, this is going to be in their the back of their mind uh, in their explaining and all of that. So we're really going to look at just a couple of things this morning. I say just a couple of things, but there's a lot with each of these. Uh, baptism in spiritual warfare uh, and the Bible in spiritual warfare and how both of those parts are uh, things that we are using to fight this war that maybe you didn't know that you were in, but you are uh, if you are a Christian, uh, and how we participate in those things uh, what that's ultimately bringing about personally uh, as well as collectively because there is a uh, uh, very much a church element. And so that while there are some personal pieces to this, we need to think collectively as the kingdom of God, uh, not just you know me as somebody in the kingdom of God, but us in the kingdom of God and what we're doing. Okay, uh, I want to read at the very top there, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 a passage that we'll spend more time with in the second half of the class, uh, but one that we're familiar enough with, I think, uh, that we uh, we read it, we, we're aware of it, we've maybe even, you know, children's class or VBS'd this particular passage, because the armor of God makes for a good setup, and, and how it's laid out, it's a nice illustration, uh, but there's more going on here that Paul has in mind, we'll get to that later. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right. Last week we looked at Jesus and his interactions uh, with the, uh, we'll say the spiritual realm. One of the things, um, I think we pointed it out, uh, but if not, we, we have a little bit throughout uh, these spiritual things, there's always a, it, it's not physical or spiritual. There's always this both, uh, the, the and kind of idea. Uh, you have spiritual realm stuff. Jesus is casting out these demons, but what are those things doing? Well, they're affecting the physical world and they're uh, behind the scenes in all of that, driving a lot of the chaos and all those sorts of things. Uh, it's not either or, and a lot of Paul's language that we'll see in Ephesians is going to direct us that sort of way. Uh, but we're going to start with Peter first instead. First uh, Peter 3, if you want to turn over there, but we have uh, the verses that we really want to focus in on uh, here on page 1. This is going to bring a lot of the knowledge over the last eight weeks uh, together uh, into this section. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 22 is a rather peculiar passage. It uh, starts out pretty easy to understand and then quickly 
Uh, maybe it devolves is not the right word, but it, it quickly changes into a, what are we talking about here? <laughs> What's going on? Uh, passage. And it can be tempting to gloss over this uh, with a shrug and move on, but it's here because it is important. Uh, it's here because it is teaching us something, uh, and so we should understand it. Uh, the uh, One of the, the the foremost guy who has made kind of the Unseen Realm, that's why we titled it Unseen Realm, he actually passed away two or three weeks ago, 50-something uh, years old. He had been battling, I think it was cancer, and still putting stuff out, but then just gone. Uh, but up until that point, he had been dedicating... Uh, to this particular subject, uh, but he recalled going to a worship service somewhere, and the preacher came to this particular passage and read it and said, this is a weird, difficult passage, and not really sure what it says, and just kept going. And he remembers sitting there thinking, try, <laughs> just give, give me something, you know, try, try to figure this out, because it's here, uh, and there's something that's being communicated by Peter that's important to the overall message. Uh, so let's start in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, going through verse 22. It's on your paper, but if you've got your Bible open there, uh, you know, join along. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Pausing there, okay, that's the point that we're making. It's flesh and spirit. There's physical, spiritual. It's not or it's both of those things are talked about together. We do ourselves a disservice, and there have been a lot of very bad teachings throughout Christian history as a result of trying to segment physical and spiritual things. God made all of it, uh, and God has purpose for all of it, and so we shouldn't segment. Uh, but here you have those being combined, again, as they often are. Uh, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's the weird part. Uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There's all sorts of stuff going on here. Uh, the uh, the language in verse 22 sounds very similar to what we read from Paul in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 at the start. Uh, this idea of uh, authorities and powers are often connected to other things. The heavenlies, as Paul is going to do, Peter connects it with God, angels, authorities, powers, uh, and brings that all together. We'll look more at that later. Uh, in this whole section, you would think that the went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison would be the hardest part of this section. Uh, but apparently it's not. It's verse 21, which says, baptism now saves you. That's apparently really hard for a lot of people. Out of the whole section, I don't know why that's the one. Uh, I wish there was a lot more on verse 19 uh, than there is on the other. Because <laughs> uh, that's the weird part. That's, that's the interesting section in all of this. Uh, that you have Jesus being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. So this is post-cross that we're getting time here. Uh, in which he went, in the spirit, uh, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey. So these are not good things. These are disobedient spirits. 
Uh, they're in prison. That's not where you want to be. Uh, I believe that is the word uh, Tartarus there, though I don't have, I can look that up uh, if need be. Uh, but I believe that that's what that word is. It's this Greek idea of prison for dead things. This is not a good place. These are disobedient spirits. Jesus goes there. Uh, and then it says in verse 20, where these disobedient spirits are, uh, when, when they were disobedient. Uh, he says there in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved, brought safely through water, connects it to baptism, uh, and our own ascent, because baptism is connected to uh, death of old self, birth of new self, joining into his death, burial, resurrection, and all of this. Uh, and so you have Jesus going to the right hand of God. Paul will say the same kind of stuff in every book that he writes uh, about the being brought up, exalted uh, with God, uh, seated with God is what he'll say in Ephesians, and we'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, but that whole idea there, all connected to baptism uh, and the cross and everything like that. So this is death, burial, resurrection stuff. Uh, and that's all very straightforward. We understand that. It's in Romans 6. It's in uh, Acts 2. It's, it's in a million places. <laughs> uh, death, burial, resurrection, and baptism. That's all connected. We get that. Uh, but then you have all of this stuff from Peter being included here. Let's continue on bottom of page 1. We know from 2 Peter, and the similar discussion had in Jude, that at the very least, Peter and Jude were good students of texts like First Enoch, which we've spent time talking about in prior classes. Not inspired literature, but literature that informs the Jewish mindset and what they thought about how the world worked uh, and things like that. While these books are not inspired, they seem to hold some truth uh, that Peter and Jude drew on and included within the inspired text of Scripture. Jude quotes from First Enoch, something that is true, that is mentioned there, in the same way I would say that Paul quotes from poets in Acts 17. Okay, it's not that everything those poets said were inspired, but those particular things were true, and so they're being used to convey a message. That's what Peter uh, does in 2 Peter, it's what Jude does in his book, uh, and that's the idea being brought about here. Uh, when we talked about Genesis 6, we said that the Jewish belief was... Uh, that it was rebellious angels who came down, uh, and as a result of their, uh, as Jude calls it, their leaving of their proper dwelling place and going after unnatural flesh and desire, lust, compares them to what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, these giant things are created, uh, and as a result of that, God says, time to reset, and it is a new creation, in a sense. It goes through the whole creation week again, through the flood. It's a whole pattern thing. Uh, and that's what Peter is bringing up here. He goes back to the flood. During the flood, he talks about these disobedient spirits that, are, uh, that were disobedient then. They're put into prison. And Jesus is going and visiting these things uh, in his death here, prior to his ascension, because that's where we end, verse 22. Top of page 2. We're making good time, I think. I don't know. Uh, in 2 Peter 2, 4, it's, it's there that we have Tartarus. Uh, we are told that the sinful angels, uh, those, and we should read that, because it's there. 
Sorry, had to do the song real quick. Second uh, Peter two four. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, which is then followed by if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and then it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, seems to be uh, chronological there in Peter's thinking. Jude will talk about those events as well, but what Jude says about the angel thing is more specific. He compares it to uh, likewise the pursuing of unnatural flesh in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he Jude straight up says, uh, you know, when they were uh, sexually deviant in Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, that's what those angels. T- I mean, that's that's how Jude says that. He compares it uh, twice with two different words uh, there in his book. They're both talking about similar things, uh, but you have in Second Peter two four uh, that they are put into this place where they are chained to be kept until judgment. Uh, ESV says hell in 2 verse 4, not a good translation, Hades is better than hell, place of the dead kind of idea, uh, Tartarus is the actual word, which is one of three that are used in the New Testament, uh, but we can get into that another time. Um, this is an entirely different word, <laughs> Tartarus is a very unique word, biblically speaking, uh, but this is generally the place of the dead. So Jesus goes to the place of the dead to talk to these disobedient spirits that are chained there because of their disobedience in the days of Noah. And again, the Jewish mindset is those are rebellious angels uh, that are are imprisoned there. The book of 1 Enoch, these sinful angels are called watchers. Uh, And in that book, interestingly, this is the Jewish mindset, uh, they asked Enoch to appeal their sentence to God. Uh, you know, whoops, we've realized now in our death here, as we are sitting here punished in chains, maybe we made a mistake. And so they ask Enoch to go talk to God and say, hey, can you get us out of here, you know, for old time's sake, Enoch. Uh, And Enoch says no. Uh, And uh, God has denied your release, and Enoch goes and tells them the bad news. Now, that's not actually what happens, because Enoch doesn't actually do those things. But the Jewish mindset is these disobedient spirits, these angels that are imprisoned here, uh, want release from that, and God says no. But it's not Enoch who's going there. Biblically speaking, Peter says Jesus does this and says, enjoy your, enjoy your imprisonment. Uh, you've lost. You are not successful. This rebellion from the beginning uh, has proved completely ineffective. You guys lost. And that, that seems to be what's taking place here. Peter uses this story in Enoch, it appears, as a backdrop for the actions of Jesus, which is not uncommon. Paul uses Adam as a backdrop for Jesus in 1 Corinthians. So there's precedent for this kind of idea. Here's what's happening if we tie all this together. Through the cross, the evil spiritual forces believe they had won victory over Jesus. We talked last week at the Transfiguration, where it is... Uh, announced the second time. The first time is at the baptism of Jesus. The second time is his transfiguration, where it says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Transfiguration adds the line, listen to him. We talked about where that likely was and how that was declaration of war. Uh, And immediately following the transfiguration, we fast forward to Jesus's death. Prior to that, Jesus is is going, but when he's announced as, you're the son of God, 
He tells Peter and the other disciples there, I'm going to have to die. They go to the transfiguration, and now it's, we're, going, we're headed to the cross fast. Uh, because killing him is the way that they defeat the Son of God. And God won't reclaim the nations back to himself, because the Messiah will be dead. You know, that's how we'll win. That's how they lose, but they don't know that. Uh, so by taking Jesus to the cross, they think they have victory Peter appears to tell us that these forces were set straight by Jesus in the place of the dead, in this prison here. They hadn't won the victory. Their defeat had been set. Uh, at the end of this section, the dead Jesus is resurrected. He, he's resurrected, ascends here, uh, and, sets at God's, uh, and is set at God's right hand with the powers and authorities subjected to him. And again, that's Paul's language too. So there's this consistent theme of through the cross and his resurrection, uh, Jesus is given the victory over all these other powers and authorities. Now, they're called powers and authorities because they have power and authority, but that is running out. Their time is running out. Those things are being taken away. Everything will be brought back uh, to God here. Uh, consider also Luke 11, uh, 14 through 26. We won't read all of that. Uh, but in 14 through 23, you have Jesus going about doing his work, his ministry, uh, and the, uh, is it the Pharisees here? Uh, well, just people in Luke. It says, but some of them, uh, just talking about people, uh, said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So... He casts out demons by the power of demons, and you have Jesus giving the yeah, kingdom divided against itself. That's, it's not going to work. And so he points out the logical flaw in their reasoning here. That is not by demons that I cast out demons. It's ridiculous. That's not, that's, that idea won't work. And so then he drops the next logical part of this is it's by God that I cast out demons. And if that's accurate, and what other option do they have? Uh, because the kingdom divided against itself, that, that's not going to work. So if it's by God that I'm doing these things, pay attention to the things I'm doing. That, that's where he's coming from. So right after that, right after that section in Luke's gospel, verses 24 through 26 in Luke 11 says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Matthew also talks about this, though it's somewhat separated from the kingdom divided against itself thing. Presented in a different way, but the idea is similar. Uh, the whole spirit's looking for waterless places. We mentioned that a little bit last week. Just an interesting detail that two of our gospel writers include for us. Uh, it's not nothing. There's something there with that. But the more important part is, on your paper there, when one unclean spirit leaves, if nothing is there to replace it, they'll just come on back with, with more. The house is empty. You know, let's come on back. And you have Jesus casting out all of these demons and that's a very good and important thing, and it shows us power and authority. But there's a second half to all of this of what do you do now? You know, if I'm casting these things out by the power of God, you need to turn yourself over to God's power, or 
these powers and authorities are just going to return uh, and all of this. Okay, so it seems reasonable to view this passage in light of places like Acts 2.38, uh, where you have baptism taking place in uh, connection with the Holy Spirit, talked about there. Uh, Jesus' own baptism in Matthew 3, it mentions specifically the Spirit ascending uh, like a dove there. Uh, the spirits of sin are sent out, and there, become, there becomes expectation for those in Christ Jesus to grow in their walk with God through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16-26, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's also worth noting that Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism, and then preaching of those that have been baptized by John. They have been cleansed. This old self is gone. Uh, these things before that had authority and power over their life no longer present, but those things can return. Okay, you can go back to the old way of living if you don't replace it with something else. Uh, it's one thing to get rid of uh, what, what's bad. Okay? But if you, if you destroy an old house or an old building, uh, you will get rid of all the bad stuff, and then you'll be left with a foundation. If you want to live in a house, you have to start putting something new there. You have to build new structure, new habits, new way of living, and that's the idea. And so there seems to be this whole idea of get rid of these spirits, get rid of this power and authority, these things over your life, which happens at baptism. Repeatedly, that's the theme that we're given. And then put God there instead, the spirit there instead, his spirit, so that there is nothing else that can come back in uh, and take that place. And that's the language that we're given uh, in Acts and Galatians, Romans, etc. Uh, so how does baptism fit into all of this? It joins us to the resurrection of Jesus. It removes the sin and its effects and brings us into harmony with Jesus. Through baptism, we are delivered from death in the same way that Noah was delivered from unrighteousness in his day. Uh, we've got all of these things around Noah. God says we're going to use water to cleanse this, start things new. And then God, with Noah and his family, says... Fruitful, multiply. I'm like, bear my image, follow after me. Uh, the same sort of thing uh, that he gives to Adam and Eve. That's the idea here. Baptism is this you are new, everything's wiped clean, washed clean. Now do this. Okay, you can't just come out and go, I've been baptized, everything's fine, nothing will ever be a problem again. That's not accurate. <laughs> if you don't grow, if you don't walk, uh, bear the fruit of the Spirit, all of this, then what's going to happen is the return back to the life before. Okay, so baptism is spiritual warfare. You're joining yourself to what Jesus has done. You're joining yourself to his death and resurrection, which signaled the defeat of these things explicitly, because Jesus lets them know, I died and will be resurrected, you lost. And when we are baptized, we join ourselves to that victory in Christ. Uh, that's spiritual warfare. It's not just a, <laughs> I, I'm new, this is great, I'm feeling pumped about all of this. It's not just an emotional thing, it's not just the, uh, God says, go get baptized, just because God can say whatever he wants. There is a purpose behind all of it, and part of that purpose is we're joining in now with Jesus in his kingdom, having been cleansed to be something brand new. And we can either be something new, or we can go back to the old way. 
but this passage in Luke and Matthew and those uh, uh, others like it tell us, warn us not to go back to that old way, but grow instead uh, in church life, personally, and together. Okay. Number two, bottom of page two, the Bible and spiritual warfare. At the end of the book of Ephesians, you can turn over there if you want, the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul just launches into a discussion on uh, spiritual warfare, the armor, the armor of God, and all of this. He has been building up towards this uh, to this point throughout the book. What he has to do first is say, "Hey, there's a divide between Jews and Gentiles. Let's address this." Because if we're so busy being divided and fighting against one another, we're going to miss. The bigger thing, the thing that's happening behind the scenes. You know, if we're if we're looking at each other as enemies, we're missing the real enemy. And so Paul spends the first three chapters saying, "We're not each other's enemies. If you if you are in the church, you're all one. You know, so act like one. We've all been baptized in the same thing. We all believe the same thing. It's through Jesus's uh, act on the cross and his resurrection that everything's changed for us. Okay, that's the first half of Ephesians." In the next two chapters, this is Ephesians 4 and 5, he says, walk this way. And we talked about that uh, last Sunday morning, uh, about how we walk, and that's where Paul goes next. You have been raised with him, seated with him, you're new, your new life, baptized with him. This is how you need to live. Okay? Because if we don't, and we just stay here, we're going to end up going backwards, allowing the old things in. It's the same sort of idea. And then we get into chapter 6, and he says, uh, let me tell you about this battle against the spiritual realm that you're involved in. And it just comes out of, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Uh, but Paul has to address all of that other stuff first before he can say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And he has to lay out the flesh and blood that they are wrestling against. <laughs> we stop doing that because there's something else more important. A bigger battle we're fighting. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Let's stop fighting here because there's something more important that we're doing. Okay. Sorry for this side of the room. You're the fighting between each other. This is the. So in when it's back when uh, we were talking about uh, the spirits being in prison. Yeah. Is that demons or is that evil spirits? What does that mean? Because they're still here, right? I mean, on the earth and... So, in... It's that same sort of, there seems to be a lot, and then all of that decreases pretty... Like, we don't see a lot in, throughout the New Testament writings of demons continue to be everywhere all the time. The, the, the conversation about that drops off in the same way that the conversation about the giants drop off. Does that make sense? So, when Jesus comes onto the scene, but then he is imprisoning them more and right. more and more and more and more, all that sort of stuff, some are imprisoned here during this time in the Old Testament. Jesus is finishing that because he's like Moses, Joshua, and David. Like that's so the that's connector. not the people we're fighting against in Ephesians 6? No, so I'm not saying that they're not present at all. Um, I would say Satan is still present. That's the language that Peter uses. Is that This is still very much a present. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. That's the language that he uses. Uh, John in Revelation is also going to talk about that too. Revelation class later this year for... Anybody interested? Uh, I don't know what it's going to be. I'm teaching it, though. <laughs> so figure it out. Uh, uh, but John uses that language, too, talking about the 
present power and authority of Satan, though we know what's going to happen there. Paul does that in this book, too, in Ephesians, where he says Satan is still doing this stuff, uh, but the power is getting lessened because Jesus is going to win. Go ahead. Part of this will be connected with Jesus giving power to the apostles. Yes. Also, and their ability to pass on that power, but then it stops there. Um, right. And so that that's another indication that everything is kind of going down because there's no reason for it after that generation is gone. I, yeah, I wouldn't say things like, uh, I would not say that demons are or spirits or whatever, just those evil things. Uh, are involved in our lives today in all of the same ways that they were then. Because there's a lot of possession, things like that. It's not always possession, though, and this is worth mentioning. Sometimes it's just uh, oppression, where they're not like inhabiting someone, but they're acting on the outside of an individual. Uh, we'll say setting trials, things before them, stuff like that, uh, which seems to be the indication we're given here too. Uh, so I wouldn't say things like p possession still occurred today, uh, but I would absolutely be on board with affliction still occurring today well, as a result of those things. Thessalonians 2, yeah. at the beginning, it talks about, it's like a warning, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. So it kind of seems like they still have some... Effect even, and that we, he warned us of that. Yeah, uh, and in Second Thessalonians two nine, <coughs> uh, the coming of the lawless ones by the activity of Satan. Like this, this one individual is given. Not because in, in the Old Testament it's not one thing, in the New Testament it's one thing, uh, and some things that he has with him on his side, uh, but they're again because of Jesus and the apostles dwindling and you've got it's like you have this one guy left and he's setting traps and trying to work and all of this stuff but he's gonna lose like he knows it's over um doing what he can in the meantime uh the whole idea of what the apostles were able to do casting out demons some other things like that healings other things uh and then that ultimately going away uh, i think fits well with what we're going to talk about here uh, if there's still evil stuff, stuff is the technical term uh, that we use. <laughs> uh, if those things are still present, active, at least to some degree, well, how do we combat to them? How, what do we do? How do we withstand these things? That's what we're coming up to. Um, I, when you read the part that says, nothing can take you out of Jesus' hand except you. Not, nor something, nor something. None, none of that can take. And I thought that's the difference. You can be possessed, but you allow it. But if you don't allow it, nothing can take you out of Jesus' hand except you. Uh, yeah, so there's there's a lot of the... Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Romans 8. Uh, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, which... The way Paul uses the word powers, I have to guess that that's part of that stuff uh, that we're talking about. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, and God will always love you, and but uh, you make choices as to, am I going to grow this way, or am I going to go back to uh, the, old, the old way? Uh, but there's definitely working of 
we can say Satan and maybe some other stuff, but that would be maybe a handful of things. But what they're able to do is not the same as if if possession's still happening, then you need people to be able to deal with all of that. There's a few indicators that that is not a lasting thing because it doesn't need to be a lasting thing. Uh, and what Paul will say here, as well as in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, is that what we have through the word and through our following after God, uh, using the power at work within us, as Paul talks about in this book as well, all of these pieces are together, uh, that is enough. Uh, that is how we combat these things. Okay, let's talk about that. Because this is the last class, so I, I don't have another week to... <laughs> uh, at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul launches into this big discussion of uh, the heavenlies. It's right at the end of verse 12. It says, in the heavenly places, the word technically is heavenlies, but that's all. Paul's discussion is spiritual realm, kind of macro idea that there is, you might even think of it as a parallel to this one in some ways, uh, but there's this big heavenlies place, and God is there, uh, but he's not the only thing there, because he talks about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness uh, against the spiritual forces of evil, and they're also there in the heavenlies. So there's bad stuff up there, and there's good stuff up there. Uh, and they are warring, and we are participants in all of that, is what Paul tells us here in this section. Uh, he builds with the heavenly idea from the very beginning. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, our spiritual blessings are located in the heavenlies. Chapter 1, verse 20, uh, he says that uh, he uh, does this great power in Christ, uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, so present in his resurrection, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies. And so there's, there's Jesus, the resurrection, and all that. That's what Peter talked about. So we've got patterns forming here. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that because of what Christ has done, in some sense, we are also, because it's past tense, seated us with him in the heavenlies. It's not future tense. So in some, in some way... We are present, though here physically we're a part of this heavenly kingdom. Don't try to separate physical and spiritual. Yes, the church right here, like you're physical, you're sitting in a physical location, part of the church here, but this is also part of the church. There are other Christians meeting right now that are also part of this body of Christ. It's bigger than, it's bigger than me, it's bigger than us, uh, and it's bigger than this physical thing. We are taking the reign of God over the world. There's a spiritual sense to all of that too. Don't separate. Uh, don't separate physical and spiritual. So are there different words for the heavenlies? For Greek, because like in 2 Corinthians, it talks about a third heaven. So No, it's the which, same, it's the it's same, same word. Yeah. It's all the same? Okay. Yes, but there are Jewish ideas that there are layers to. Uh, they would call, because uh, Paul talks about the third heaven there, and so first heaven was sky, second heaven was uh, universe, like stars, all that stuff. Third heaven is where God is. I think there's some writings where there's seven, which, you know, seventh heaven, TV show, whatever. Uh, I don't think they were based 
on the Jewish test. Uh, but they had different levels, and they would use heaven to say that stuff up there. There's this up here, and then there's that one that's higher up, and so that's number two. And then, yeah. So when Paul says third heaven, that's a Jewish idea that he would be well acquainted with, as would most of his readers. And uh, he's talking about the place where God is in that location. Okay, but it's the same word. Same word. Uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he says that there are rulers uh, and authorities. Uh, he actually says, uh, to bring, this is verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, so the church makes known the plan of God, not just to the people in the world that we're living in, but also, he says, the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. So think of it kind of as the flip of what Jesus has said to the things in prison of this was God's plan you guys lose. When we are faithfully living as God's church, as his kingdom here, and conversion is not just, hey, you believed this, but now you believe this thing isn't that great. Why don't you just come attend here? It's you were formerly with these powers. This is Ephesians 2. You formerly walked this way. Now you're a part of God's kingdom. Sorry, yeah, I should do it this way. You were formerly a part of this bad kingdom, and now you're in God's kingdom. Uh, it's a change of, it's a changing of authority. We have just participated in by doing that. And this is baptism. This is somebody growing as they're learning and being taught. We are participating in that Psalm 82, hope of God, reclaim the nation, inherit the nations. We're participating in that. We're God's kingdom, moving and bringing people out of that kingdom and into God's. It's a big deal. That's, that's spiritual warfare. It's far more than just they believed this and now they believe this. I hope they're here every week. There's so much more to it than that. We're participating in moving people from one kingdom that leads to death to the kingdom that leads to life. Uh, when we do those things. Okay. Uh, and when we do this, the, the things up there that are opposed to God, which apparently there are, are still actively involved there. Uh, when we do this, those things are being made aware of. You didn't defeat God's plan with Jesus dying. Uh, there, there's no point in rebelling because his kingdom is growing uh, across his creation. Okay. And then the last usage, uh, top of page three is there in chapter 6, verse 12. And Paul expands on the language, rulers and authorities, but then he says, rulers and authorities. And now we can know what he meant. What do you mean rulers and authorities in the heaven? Are you talking about people in positions of... He says it's in the heavenlies. Okay, well, maybe he means... But then when we get into 6, it's clear what he's talking about. Rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, they're not good things, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. He says that's where our battle is. That's where our real wrestling is. And when we're living as the church, we're fighting against those things. I have five minutes according to that bell. Let's go quick. Uh, the heavenlies then is a place where both good and evil are striving against each other. God is there, as in Father, Spirit, Son, as are we to some degree in some way, because we're participating in all of this, being a part of God's Yes, earthly kingdom, but also heavenly. It's both physical and spiritual. Uh, and so are these spiritual forces of evil. Um, Paul doesn't just say, hey, you're in a battle. Best of luck, guys. He says, put on the armor of God. 
uh, and then lays out belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God uh, there on your paper. And then right at the end, it's prayer, 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 because prayer uh, ties all these pieces together. It keeps us alert, he says in verse 18. Uh, and it keeps us tied to the Spirit, he says in verse 18, which is good, because if we abandon the Spirit of God, we leave room empty for other powers and authorities, that idea anyway. Uh, as well as each other. Prayer ties us to one another. The saints um, brings us together. Uh, it also focuses us on what we're doing, the wrestling against these spiritual forces through the pro- proclaiming of the gospel. When Paul gets into verses 19 and 20 and says, you know, be praying for me be, that I would speak the message of the gospel well, he's not just going, oh, by the way, uh, armor of God stuff aside, I'm also going to do some missionary traveling. It's all together. It's, I'm going to go fight some of that warfare. I'm going to go work to reclaim some people from those kingdoms into God's kingdom. So be praying for me. And that's what Paul is doing here. Prayer ties all this together. Uh, Some have said Paul brings up the armor of God because he's changed to a soldier here. Um, And that might be true, but the armor of God shows up throughout Isaiah. Uh, And Paul, being as knowledgeable of the Old Testament as he is, I think is bringing these things up. He's bringing the armor of God. He's pulling these things from the Old Testament to say, we're still dealing with this the same way as we always have. We've always been wrestling against these things with these tools that God's given us. Uh, You have those references there. We will have to jump over those uh, to get to a satisfying conclusion, I hope. Bottom of page three. These Isaiah passages are directly linked to God and or Jesus. The most interesting part about all of this is the phrase of Paul, the armor of God. Isaiah shows us that this isn't just armor produced by God, but it's the armor that God wears as well. This is what God's using to fight his battle, too, if you want to think of it that way. It's his armor. Uh, How do we fight battles against these things? The same way that God does, by being about truth and righteousness, peace, salvation, and his word. You just say, bear his image. When we use that phrase, when I use that phrase, it holds a lot, because that's how it's presented. Okay. Page four, two minutes, according to that. Okay. Preach on. Okay. <laughs> the, the preacher will wait for you. Isaiah does not list one part of the armor that Paul mentions here. So there's one part that Paul brings up that's not in Isaiah. You're not going to find it there. The shield of faith. Uh, but that is found in Psalm 91, verse 4. He'll cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Okay. Why do we care about that? You know, is it, why? Why Why does that matter? Psalm 91 uh, is the place where we read this. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all his ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And we talked about the temptation of Jesus. This is a quotation that Satan uses. Say, throw yourself down, because they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan uses this chapter... And Paul just so happens to use this to say, shield of faith. And uh, what do we read in Ephesians 6? The shield of faith will do? Uh, Deflect the flaming darts of the evil one. Here's what's cool. We watch Jesus do that. He he literally uses the shield of faith to deflect the darts uh, of the evil one. 
is temptation. The place where the shield is found in Psalm is the place where Satan goes. I guess he didn't read verse 4. But Jesus is very aware of verse 4. And he fights against this spiritual enemy in that way. It's God's armor. This is how he fights those things. And we're invited to do the exact same. And that's how we'll win. Uh, Because Jesus gives us the victory. Follow after his example. And there we go. So, the practically speaking, and then we'll read the summary there. Practically speaking, uh, this has tremendous implication for the way we live our lives. Things like Bible study, worship, and patterning our lives around the teachings of Scripture are much more than just living good lives so we can get to heaven. They are tools through which the world, seen and unseen, is changed. Every action of spiritual living brings the battle closer to an end. Uh, And uh, that last sentence, I swapped these around, so ignore. Summary. Though unseen, we are participants in something much bigger than living a good life and trying to get to heaven. We are part of advancing God's kingdom throughout his creation to reclaim the lost parts under the dominion of evil to his righteous ways. Every time we uphold the truth of the gospel... Bring righteousness, spread peace, confess Jesus' name. We're advancing God's kingdom and taking another step towards the ultimate defeat of sin and its corruption on this creation. Through keeping in step with the Spirit, through study, prayer, (coughs) personal behavior, our behavior towards other people, we are continuing the march of God's kingdom in the world and bringing about the hope of Psalm 82. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Hey, the next time you pray or you think about your baptism or you come to worship, what we're about to do right now, and we're talking about the resurrection this morning. The next time we think about those things, it's more than just, wow, that's so important for me, or these are good things that God wants me to do. You are participating in bringing a conclusion to the battle, defeating these things by using the armor of God. There's so much more we could have talked about. Believe me, and I'd love to. Uh, So if you ever more questions come up, you know where to find me. Let me know, and uh, I'll talk forever about it. Love questions. We'll go from there. All right, let's pray, and then we'll go to to our worship. Father, we thank you for this time that we have uh, have had together on Sunday mornings uh, these last nine weeks to talk about this subject of uh, the unseen realm, and we thank you for Uh, all that we are able to see throughout your word about uh, the battle that's taken place, these things that have uh, brought in sin and its corruption into the world, and more importantly, uh, how you, through uh, your son Jesus, have brought about uh, the end of sin and its corruption. And God, we thank you for bringing us uh, through Jesus into your kingdom uh, to join you in fighting that war to bringing an end of sin and all of its consequences and all of its corruption, uh, bringing us ultimately to, uh, as Peter says, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, help us to be people that are righteous everywhere we go, uh, to walk by your spirit, to be good students of your word, knowing that through our study, through our prayer, through our worship, through our bearing the fruit of the spirit, we are fighting and winning the war against these other kingdoms uh, that are fighting against you. Father, we thank you for that great responsibility. Pray that we take it seriously each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.